0: Alright, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. Happy rain day. How many of you just like love the rain? You just love it. I love awesome. Awesome. How many wish you were sitting in the rain right now? Not the same amount of people, a little less. A couple of weeks ago I was at a football game and we sat in the rain. It was awesome. Alright. This morning, we are uh, going to look at um, what I would say is the set of verses that, like, turns everything. As you know, if you took the biblical literacy course, or maybe you knew this already, that the uh, book of Luke continues into the book of Acts. Some people think it's like one volume. Others uh, say it's two different, obviously. But it's kind of this turning point. So what I, I want to do is start us there. These verses, whenever we come across super familiar verses, the temptation is, that may not temptation like evil, but just like, oh yeah, I know what these verses are about. And so whenever I look at verses that I may feel like, oh, I know what these are about, God's like, stop trying to determine what they're about and pay attention. Stare at me for a while. See if there's something else in here for you to do. So, here we go. We're going to look at Acts chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. It'll be also up on the screen. Start to this. In my former book, which would be the book of Luke, Theophilus, which is who he wrote wrote it to, or like delivered it to, this high-influencing, potentially person of Roman stature that he could continue on and share with the gospel, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Anything jump out at you yet? All that Jesus began to do, sometimes we look at that's everything, but he, he just began to do and teach. Until the day he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And then after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Then he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray for a second. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Holy Spirit, may you open up the things that you have for us today. May we have postures of receiving and learning and hearing because you have given us a body to move. So we lay ourselves before you. Challenge us today. In your name. Amen. There was a guy named Francis Schaefer. He was a great Christian thinker, philosopher, theologist. He was the guy during a certain season of life, probably that was like this is the guy you would want to have come speak if you were holding a national Christian conference. He was a leading voice in so many ways. He was asked, What is the greatest obstacle? to the ministry of the modern church. He did not say postmodernism or secularism or individualism or humanism or politics or the lack of funding or resources or the shrinking voice in the discourse of public opinion. He didn't say any of those. What did he say was the greatest obstacle of ministry in the church today? He said the greatest obstacle is ministry in the flesh. The Bible uses this word flesh in kind of a couple of ways. Literally, our human bodies, God created us from the dust of the earth, gave us literal flesh. But what Schaeffer was referring to is more as the Apostle Paul talked about flesh. It's when the total person is living outside of the purposes and the power of God and relying on their own purposes and power. He said this, the real problem is this, the church of the Lord Jesus, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. If we do not want to waste our lives then we must understand the importance of having a humble, quiet heart and the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a lot of effort and great minds and strength and energy put to the things of the Lord. And the observation and maybe warning this morning as we do this together, is it of the Lord or is it of ourselves? Because I have seen the end result of being a husband, a father, a pastor, a person who strive to do things in the flesh, what has become my greatest concern, because I see in all of those there is an end to that, that is not good, is I will ever do that again. When... I am passing on my own flesh, my own things. I'm simply providing for others spoiled food. It's kind of like if you went into the refrigerator and you saw the milk and it was pretty close to that date, however they know that date, and you open it up and you like smell the milk and you're like, well, it's kind of bad, but I guess it's not that bad. It's good enough for my child's cereal. And as you pour it in, it's no longer fully liquid. Yes, but you know, like, It's good enough for you. Now, some of you may do that. I don't know. Probably not. But I think that is an exaggerated but not reflection of when we pass on the things of the flesh. Even in our most treasured relationships. Last week we talked about ministry, what that means, and how do we do that. We're called to be ministers, and our greatest concern is to literally do that ministry in the flesh. As I stared at these verses, as I just made observations, like what is it saying? I think what God has for us today is that these verses are about posture. These verses... About so many things. And about the turning point of the entire state of the church and Jesus and everything. It's about posture. Now I'm not talking posture of how straight we stand or how well we sit. But I'm talking about the posturing of our hearts. Of receiving. Or resisting. The posture of our heart. Of our soul. Of our mind. And our strength. I think we understand what it's like to have simple, casual conversations with people. Some of you might be masters at chit-chat, small talk, right? Some of you just experience small talk. You have two minutes, and some of you are like, I need more. And some of you are like, that's like the longest two minutes of my life. There's an art to small talk where you're talking about things that maybe don't matter too much. In fact, during small talk, if someone walked up to you and was like, what is the deepest hurt in your life? You might turn and walk away from them and go, they they are a bit overwhelming. But there's this chit-chat. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and they turn your back to you? It's awesome if that's never happened to you. It's actually kind of weird. Have you ever tried to get somebody's attention as they're walking away? It's hard. Chit-chat can be described as casual or trivial conversation. Polite conversations about things that just aren't really that important. This is like an understanding between people just meeting for the first time. You kind of get it. But I wonder how many times chit-chat is really all we're really doing with God. Where there's this kind of interaction and kind of you get a little time and space and like, I'm good. Sometimes small talk happens because of limited time and sometimes it's, Because of our posture and the kind of conversation we actually want to have. How does one assess their posture towards God? How do you even realize how you're facing him or not facing him? I often find that it probably has to do um, with the fact that we're trying to invite God into some things versus uh, opening ourselves to what he has to say. We invite God into our disordered loves or attachments. These can be anything that take our attention away from God. Augustine believed that our problem isn't necessarily that we love the wrong things. It's that we often love the right things in the wrong order. This might be the attachments to certain things. Last spring or during Lent, I talked about this idea that we try to manage the vapor in our life. We manage the things that we're pursuing when it just kind of disappears. That would be disordered loves, or attachments. Anything that turns our posture kind of like away from reliance on God and onto things like money, positions, possessions, even family or close relationships, which are all good things. They're all fine. But is our posture towards them for the strength or towards God? The amount of emotional and mental deposit we put on anything can make them to something that they're not meant to be. And what is that? I think it's a substitute for God. We see these things that anything we declare our identity in that's apart from what God says we are. One author calls these things like the enemies of the heart, the things that are actually inside of you to pull you, things like greed and jealousy and and pride. These loves or attachments, as we talked about last week, keep us from something. They keep us from experiencing the awe of God. I think that might be one of the measurements even when we look at like, what is my posture before God? Am I drawn to the awe of God or am I drawn to the things in front of me? D.L. Moody said it like this, Before we pray that God would fill us, I believe we ought to pray for him to empty us. (laughs) What Jesus is saying as he passes on his spirit is don't just add this to all of the things in your life. Let this be the thing in your life. The Apostle Paul references uh, the same kind of posture to this church that had become very fleshly. He writes this to the church in, in Corinth. We know that we all possess knowledge. We're smart. We know things. But knowledge puffs us up while love builds us up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. What he's saying is, are you reliant on the things that you know that puff you up, or have you literally been built from the ground up from love? As I look at these verses, I see like three things I think I just want to charge you with today, challenge you with today. Place in front of you to discover. Place in front of you to see what is my posture before God, individually and together. As we've been doing this series, talking about what I think are the first things in the Christian life, the first things in the church, things like faith and discipleship. And worship and ministry, this might be the first thing of the first things. And that is life in the Spirit together. First thing observation we must receive from the Spirit. they the first challenge, the first thing Jesus says, like in this scripture, I rose from the dead, I conquered all those things, and the, they are ready to go. And what does He say to them? Do not leave. Wait. Wow, that is a super empowering charge. It is hard for us to wait. The first command is do nothing. Wait. This seems like an odd directive. After all, these guys had seen their rabbi teach and heal and do amazing things. Then they saw their rabbi die. And then they saw their rabbi raised from the dead, proving that he is the Messiah, the savior of the world. They are fired up. They are ready to go. And Jesus goes, I know you're ready. Wait. Waiting is posture. Now, we wait in different ways. There are some of us who wait like this, right? Or like, you know, over pacing. However you're doing, and he says, let me be first. It's the posture of receiving. Obedience says, I am open to what you have for me. Whatever it is, I will not move until I receive from you first. I mean, this is a parenting's dream, right? You're here to just sit still. You're like, wait here. Yes, Mom. Yes, Dad. It often follows that. Why did you not listen to me? Because they had other things on their mind. Waiting is tough. There's a book written by Andrew Murray called Waiting on God. He writes this. At our first entrance into the school of waiting upon God, the heart is mainly set on the blessings which we wait for. Listen to that. The heart is mainly set on the blessings which we wait for, meaning we're happy to wait as long as there is an amazing result according to what we're anticipating. God graciously uses our needs and desires for help to educate us for something higher than what we were thinking of. We were seeking gifts, but he, the giver, longs to give himself. I mean, there is something here. Reread that phrase. Something higher than what we were thinking. What if God was limited to the things you thought? To the things you could come up with? Hey God, here's the plan I have. That is the essential piece why Jesus says there's power coming into your life. For us, so many of us see the needs to be addressed. We know our own needs. Waiting doesn't mean there isn't much to do because there's always something to do. But the truth is this, is that His purposes cannot be accomplished by what we provide. It has to come from His Spirit. This is not new news from Jesus. This isn't something all of a sudden He dropped in he said, this has been coming for a while. Let's go back to the story a little bit. In John 16, it says, but I tell you the truth. It is good for you that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And as we talked about this last fall, talking around transformation, and if you missed that series, I encourage you to go back to it, or you can check it out on our new app. When you're like, wow, what was it? whatever Christy said about me earlier, that was awesome. I don't remember what it was, but it was like, wow. There's this piece where I asked this question: What is better than Jesus being with you?" And he said, "My spirit being in you." So we had to go. The truth is this, my friends: the Holy Spirit is now in each and every believer. Now what, what, that, what does that mean? It means the ministry of Jesus would not be locked into one location but start to spread and be bigger. So the reality of all of this is that we're just simply a continuation of the ministry that Jesus began. Let me say that again. We are a continuation of the ministry Jesus began. Calvary Church is a continuation of the ministry that Jesus began. And you're like, but this isn't as exciting as the ministry Jesus began. And Jesus is like, that ain't my fault. I gave you the same Spirit that rose me from the dead. I'm just excited to see what you're going to do with it. This isn't simply an incentive to the believer. It's the reality of the believer. When you turn to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is placed inside of you. Here is what I think the issue is, though, as I look at it. The issue for us isn't whether the Holy Spirit is present with us I think the issue is whether he's preeminent in us. It's not whether he's present. Because I can show you biblically and prove to you and theologically and like this becomes a thing of knowledge. Like, yeah, he's in me. I know that to be true. I know the verses. But is he preeminent? It's not just that the Holy Spirit is on location like you're filming a movie. He's sitting in the director's chair telling you what's going on and how it's going to be. And that's posture, that's releasing, that's letting go. Jesus makes this reference. You will be baptized by the Spirit. Now that phrase and that reality and that truth has taken us down all sorts of streams and theologies and churches and this and that, but I'm gonna point to what I believe is the beginning of understanding that. What would the original audience have heard? Baptism is to be immersed, fully immersed. When you are baptized in water and fully immersed, it's not like you become one with the water, but you're still a body. I mean, some of you I hold under a little longer, so the water goes in you and through you, and I shake you. No, I don't do that. But you become, the water's fully immersed. It's fully around you. And the longer you stay in the water, or any water, or out in the rain, you become, you know, affected by it. But if you're in the water and then go dry off, which we do, what place does that immersion have with you? I was at this uh, celebration, uh, Danny and Monica's house, where they were going to baptize some of their kids, and some other kids, and some other people were being baptized, and it was like... a in their pool. And there was all these people here, and we're watching it, so these kids are baptized, and they're sharing their testimony, and I'm like, I love baptisms. But something different happened then that I'm not normally used to. All of a sudden, everybody, like all the kids jumped into the pool. Now we can start doing that here, like anybody want to go for a swim, because I'm sitting there at first, I'm like, wait, we just baptized these kids. This is like holy, sacred water, and God's like, I know they're all going to have a blast in it now. And they're parting, and they're swimming around. And I'm like, this is, of course, because I'm a pastor, I have these moments I'm like, this is what being immersed in the spirit can be like. Where there's joy and participation. And what better way to celebrate somebody giving their life and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus than to jump in and say, I'm going to do it with you? I'm going to be fully immersed. There's a posture of receiving that we get. I wonder if we would understand it even more if we admitted the posture of receiving we do with everything else. Meaning this, you're on your phone, your tablet, your iPad, whatever, and you open up Instagram. If you were to go Instagram, I'd take a posture of receiving from you right now. Because whether you do this or not, that's what we're doing, right? As I sit and watch this thing, I take a posture of receiving from you right now. I mean, that's just being honest and, and real. I'm not saying to not engage with those things. I'm just saying whether we realize it or not, we're on the receiving end of things. I'm receiving sometimes a story that I've created about somebody else, and I'm letting that influence me. Secondly, in my observation is this, not just that must receive or the posture of receiving and waiting, we must rely on the Spirit. We have this thing, and I get it, we want to know what the plan is, right? Like you're on vacation, you're like, what are we going to do today? Where's lunch? This and that. It feels irresponsible not to have a plan. And this is the hardest part of posture of receiving is we desperately want to know what's Next, hear this. Hear this concern from the disciples from the verses we read. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Basically, Jesus is saying to him, them, no, you don't need to know the details. Now, for some of you, that is like the hardest thing. Like, God, if you loved me, Because we connect details to love so quick. If you loved me and valued me, God, you would tell me everything that's about to happen. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to tell you why. Is he being cruel? Is he being like this, that that dad who's just trying to antagonize their kids? Like, don't worry about it, son. Like, no, I want to know. Don't worry about it. I think he's doing this because he knows That as soon as, if he's like, here's the details, they're now going to interpret the viability of those details, the reasonability of those details, how they're going to handle those details, according to the flesh. He's saying, if I tell you all of these things that you want to know, you're going to assess them in your own mind. There's something greater for you here. There's something, as Murray said, higher than you even thought possible. There's this um, family game show. It didn't last very long, but it was kind of like a challenge of the generations. So they have a younger generation and an older generation, and they would ask questions according to that generation, what they knew. So like, for the older generation, they had to guess things about what happened in current pop culture kinds of things. So at the very end of the show, whatever family won, they would choose the youngest member of that family, like a two-year-old or a three-year-old, and they got to choose the prize for the whole family. So on the stage, they would present things like a brand-new ski boat, a, a, a Bronco to pull the ski boat, and all these wads of cash little exaggeration, but not that much. On the other side of the stage would be like a Barbie dream car, a Barbie house. So the three-year-old little girl, they would say, you get to choose what your family wins and the family cannot coach them. So this little girl, every time, it's not like they're even lured towards the ski boat and the catch, they go straight to the Barbie car and go, I want this. And the family's like, oh, we could have had so much. And it's so funny. And that's the only part of the show I really liked watching. (laughs) We are drawn to things that we value. I mean, that's just the truth. Whatever stage of life that we're in, whatever we pull ourselves from. And Jesus is like, if I give you the details that you think are important, you're going to be drawn to that. Let me show you something higher than you ever even thought of. Jesus is not withholding from you. He is elevating it for you. He is saying, I think you think you know what you want. But as Murray said, God graciously uses our needs and desires for, to help educate us for something higher than we were even thinking of. What are you thinking of today? What have your prayers been like with God? And, Your prayers are great and fine, I'm sure, but is God like, you're like, why why isn't He answering me? And He's like, because I have something even greater than what you've thought of. Back to Acts 1 You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. This is a pretty amazing testing ground, He throws out too. You're gonna go be my witnesses. The power's coming. You didn't even ask for power. What did they ask for? Can we hear the details of when you're going to overthrow this thing and take care of our kingdom and make our country right again and make our country Christian again or whatever the things we think of? And he's like, let me give you power. The evidence of this power is that you're going to go testify for me where? Jerusalem, where I just died, where I was brutally murdered. You're going to go testify for me there. And you're going to go to Samaria, the places where you have all sorts of issues and of all sorts uh, 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 of things that you've done wrong to them. There's all sorts of bigotry. There's all sorts of racism. You're going to go be my witnesses there. And then I'm going to send you to the uttermost parts of the earth, beyond your wildest dreams of where that even is. That's when you know you'll have the power. So why do we feel powerless sometimes? I think it's our posture. I think we just lump in so many other things and say, God, do something with all of this. When he's like, your flesh cannot be combined with my spirit. Rely on me. Trust in me. Move forward with me. How can this be done? The power of the Holy Spirit. There's something powerful when we don't just know the story, but we realize this is also our story. Will you do something with me? Personalize this. I'm going to put this verse on the screen, and there's a blank. I want you to throw your name in there as we read this together. Are you ready? And you have to say it out loud. You don't have to. That's the opportunity. Otherwise, it's just me receiving the Spirit, and that's just awkward for all of you. Okay. But, Dale, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Let me do it again. Take a posture of receiving. Do you believe this? Put your name in there. But, Dale, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You know the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work in a church when the mission of Jesus becomes deeply personal in the body parts. Let me say that again. If I am asked, how do you know when your church is flourishing? How do you know when your church is like healthy? This is the place to be. It's not by how packed it is, though that might be an evidence of something. It's not by the activities. It's not by all the programs. It is this. You know the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work in a church when the mission of Jesus becomes deeply personal in its body parts. When the mission of Jesus becomes deeply personal for you and you and you and you. Last week, we talked about this idea of, like, how do I join you? These questions I gave you that we're not trying to create when we create ideas and programs on our own, that's in the flesh. But maybe we just say, Jesus, what ministry are you doing with my child? How can I join you? Jesus, what are you doing in the life of my spouse? How can I join Jesus, what are you doing in the life of my friend? How can I join? Jesus, what are you doing in the lives of those around me? How can I join? Jesus speaks some power into us. And then there's this other mind-bending phrase from Jesus. He says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. What in the world? Jesus is saying, you will do greater things than me. Now that just, I mean, for some of you, you're like, yeah, I get that. Some, that, that. some of that, that feels wrong. Greater. Once again, so many streams of thought. Greater can also mean more. Greater can also mean wider. At minimum, I think Jesus is saying, because of the power in you, the expansion of ministry will continue to grow more than more than I ever saw when I was here on earth. And the transformation of life that you're going to see will be more than what I've ever seen here in more people, in more places. And finally, we must relate to the Spirit. And this is how we're gonna zoom in on today. If we don't realize that it's a relationship, we'll just become exhausted. Our struggle is that we when we ourselves see ourselves as workers, then worshipers. We're like, I'm doing this for the joy of the Lord and no one is helping me. You're a worker, not a worshiper. We do it in the wrong order. God is not up in heaven looking down on Calvary Church or any church going, Man, if I had their resources, I could do so much. God's like, No, I have more resources than all of you. In fact, everything you have is from me. I have dreams for you. Are you willing to let go of the things you're envisioning for the things I'm envisioning? This is what Jesus is desiring. Listen, and I will go ask the Father. This is so cool. I mean, if you think of it, Jesus is like it's kind of like he's having a, a conversation with us and we're asking for something, he's like, "Let me go ask my dad." I mean, my dad has resources. My dad has things like, "Hey, can you drive us? Can we take the car out?" To "Let me go ask my dad." So Jesus is like, "Let me go ask my dad and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth." Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be with and he will be in you. The truth is this. We should be worshipers first, then workers. It should come from an intrinsic thing within us of what God is doing within us. What is the goal of this church? It is intimacy with God. Now, ministry exists because intimacy doesn't. We minister to re-engage people into intimacy with God. It is not the ministry that sustains the relationship. It is the relationship with him that sustains the ministry. Do we have that in the right order, my friends? It is not how busy you are. It is not the things you think of that keep something going. It is him that keeps something going for us to be able to reach out. If we flip it, we're workers and worshipers. If we flip it, we have disordered loves. We're loving the right things in the wrong order. But what if we said, God, I want to worship you first, respond to you first, Because if God is our first love, my friends, we're going to love what he loves. If God is our first love, we're going to love what he loves. Peter is ending this powerful sermon where he's letting the power of the Holy Spirit come out and he says this, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Why? In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. As we zero in, what does God really have for you today? What does his spirit do? Yeah, he convicts and he reminds you and he says, come right." But what does he want for you? He wants times of refreshment for you. Refreshing. That the things of this world aren't the things to be acquired, but he is first. I've never been able to tell my wife I'm sorry in an authentic way without opening myself up to her by simply saying, I screwed up. And then she'd be like, why did you do that? That's not the topic. I screwed up. But why? That's not gonna help this conversation. <laughs> and then she gets what I'm doing, like. I understand. Any kind of reconciliation is us stepping in first and saying, this is how I messed up. Our reconciliation with God is the same way, and what does he offer back? Is it rebuke? Is it pain? It's his spirit. It's refreshment. As we end, this might be fearful for you, This might be something that you're like, I'm not sure I can fully trust this. Sounds dangerous. Sounds painful. My encouragement for you is if we can trust the one who took the first step and the next step and the next step and the next step for us, the safest place you can be is a posture with him in receiving the Spirit. What I have found personally, is the more I see my name engraved on his heart, the more he engraves the mission on my heart. For you, it might be this morning for his spirit to become present in you for the very first time. For you, it might mean that he's been present, but is he preeminent? Is he the ones calling the shots, bringing you to a place of refreshment, bringing you to a place of courage?